you have your Bibles with you, if you could open up to Exodus chapter 20. And if you recall from last week, we began a series in the Ten Commandments. And uh, this is the second one, and yes, last week was a, an introduction. If you weren't here last week and uh, were not able to hear that, I'd encourage you to grab hold of that off the website, take a listen to it, because it forms the foundation for how we're going to approach the Ten Commandments. Are they relevant in our lives, and if so, in what way? How do we live them out? By the way, please be in prayer for... We have two retreats going on this weekend. So if you're looking around and you're not seeing people that you normally see, we've got around 50 or 60 teens and leaders up at Camp Orchard Hill, and we've got a whole group of men up at their men's retreat as well. So be praying for them for safety on the way back, okay? If you would, please. So I have a question for you this morning. Just a way to get us moving in the right direction together. And it requires us to do something that none of... To be honest, none of us are very good at, including me. And that is being honest with God. Now listen, you're the only one interacting with God right now. You might as well just be absolutely, utterly, vulnerably honest. Where are you right now, today, in your relationship with the Lord? Now listen, if I asked husbands, where are you right now in your relationship with your wives? You would have tangible answers for that. Well, we haven't been spending a lot of time lately. Things have gotten crazy busy. Or, you know what, we're having some problems with one of our kids and it sort of has wedged us apart. I mean, you know how to answer that. Ladies, you know how to answer that with your husband. So, when I ask you, where are you right now, today, in your relationship with God, maybe you're reflecting on that and you're going, well, you know what, we're, we've drifted. I used to be so passionate about God. You know, I have to be honest, I'm really angry at you, God. Over and over, things are falling apart in my life. I keep praying, nothing's happening. Where are you right now? Maybe, maybe you're walking closely with the Lord. Maybe this is a sort of a resurgence in your life spiritually. And things have never been better with you and God. You, you're just faithful in your time with the Lord. And there's an intimacy now that there's never been before in your life. So maybe that's your answer. But wherever you are, can you honestly begin this morning by saying, this is where I am with God. I am right here, God, with you. Let's take that answer that you have privately made with the Lord and let's engage the Word of God with that, but let's preface it with this story. True story. It was reported in the Chicago Tribune years ago. It's about a New Mexico woman that was frying tortillas. And as she cooked, she noticed that the skillet burns on one of the tortillas resembled what she thought to be the face of Jesus. And she became excited and she showed it to her husband and neighbors who all agreed there was a face etched on that tortilla and it did resemble Jesus. Now how they know that it resembles Jesus, who knows, but they assumed that Jesus must look like the image that's on that tortilla. So they took the woman and her husband, they took the tortilla to her priest to have it blessed. She and her husband both testified to the priest that she is a more peaceful woman, she's happier, she's more, men, start frying tortillas, submissive wife, 
since the arrival of the tortilla, and the priest who had never blessed their tortilla before reluctantly agreed after hearing of their testimony. They took the tortilla home and they put it in a glass case and put it on piles of cotton so that it gave the appearance of floating on clouds and then a special altar for it was built and they opened, quote, the shrine of the Jesus of the tortilla to visitors and within months, 8,000 people worshipped. And they all agreed when they worshipped that it resembled the face of Jesus all but one person. It was the reporter writing the story who said it looked more like the heavyweight boxing champion Leon Spinks. <laughs> so we come to this first commandment, and I hope you've got your Bibles open. If you don't have yours open, there's one right in front of you in the back of that pew. Let's get it open because I'm going to dissect this short, brief little verse into three sections. And here it is in verse 3. Let's read it together. You shall have no other gods before me. That's it. Little commandment, but when you unpack it, there's a world of meaning. What do we learn? Well, number one, God made us to worship. God made us to worship. Now, how do you see that in this commandment? Let's look at that. Now, here's where you got to really pay attention. Grab hold of this with your minds. You ready? You're listening. You're focusing. As Pastor Tim says, everybody look at me. I don't know why I do that. It's a little lonely up here. You shall have is a major clue. What can you get out of those three words? Friends, this is a command. This is a red light before it turns green. It's a negative before a positive. It's a stop before you go. Here it is. It's a command to stop putting anything or anyone above or before God and begin worshiping Him above all others. That's verse 3. That's the first command. And this is what the moral law does. Now listen, men and ladies, and if there's any teens here, are you like me in that it doesn't matter if I'm below the speed limit, at the speed limit, or above the speed limit. If I see a police officer on the side of the road, I always automatically take my foot off the gas and put it on the brake. Do you do that? Some of you are such horrible sinners, you're so good at it. You just push it a little harder. Bruce, you know what I'm talking about, right? Stay cop. This is what the law of God does. This is what John Calvin says. It's one of the three uses of the wall. It arrests behavior. It makes you stop. So when you see the law of God, I think I just said the wall. When you see the law of God and it comes into clarity, it makes you check yourself. And that's what this law is doing. The moral law of God intends to force us to check our behavior and examine our hearts. Here it is. Are we worshiping God right? Are we worshiping the right God? There's a subtle truth, though, that we need to look at when we read, you shall have, and here it is. Now let's all grab hold of this. We are created to worship. Did you notice what verse 3 does not say? God doesn't have to command us to begin to worship. He assumes we already are worshiping Him. He just has to command us to worship Him exclusively. And because the desire to worship is so designed and ingrained into the heart of every person, whether you're a Christian or not, we always worship 
something and we always worship all the time. You know, I watched footage the other day of a, an NBA game and the camera caught this girl who found herself sitting a row behind Justin Bieber. By the way, that's Matt Millen's favorite singer. And within seconds of realizing this, listen, within seconds of realizing that she's now sitting behind Bieber, she becomes a believer, Bieber, believer, whatever, that was a joke, she, gets, she starts shaking. And the camera zooms in on her. She's visibly shaking and bouncing up and down in her chair, and all of a sudden she pulls her cell phone out and begins texting her friends, and friends, I'm not kidding, I watched this streams of tears pour down her face. Listen, do you understand? That's worship. Worship is all around us and we all engage in it. By the way, child sacrifice is still alive and well in America. I mean, how else do you explain when you watch the career paths of moms and dads bow at the altar of their career, striving to gain position, power, in possessions, how do you explain that if you don't put that in the category of worship? Is it wrong for a mom to work? Absolutely not. But when parents aren't able to invest in their children because of their pursuit for possessions, if that's what's motivating it, you're looking at worship. Notice the furious scrambles when a guest is about to arrive and you go flying through your home cleaning it up. Who are you working for in that moment? How about when we starve ourselves for beauty or when we cut ourselves for atoning our guilt? When we read book after book to fill our hearts with entertainment and fantasy and we educate ourselves to our own self-exaltation. You see, listen, working hard, working long hours, losing weight, reading and educating ourselves, by themselves they are good. Until all of a sudden, perhaps God shows us that what's standing on the other side of that altar is yourself. And often, that's the crux of our worship. You shall have is worship. And what it really means when it says you shall have, take that word have, and substitute these synonyms. You shall seek, you shall own, you shall possess, you shall desire, you shall love something to the degree that you will begin to orient your life around it. It becomes centerpiece in your life and you begin sacrificing to it. That is the definition of worship. That's what we are to do with God. And the drive to worship isn't dormant in us until God kicks it into gear. It's alive and well from birth. Every person worships either the Creator or creation. In fact, worship, friends, if you want a little trivia, it's the most prevalent topic in the entire Bible. And idolatry or false worship is the most common problem in the pages of Scripture. Addiction is worship issue. People-pleasing is a worship issue. Love of money is a worship issue. False religions are a worship issue. And you would say, Pastor Tim, 
That's obvious. Well, how about these? Unforgiveness is a worship issue. Conflicts in our marriages are worship issues. Defiance and rebellion in our children are worship issues. All of life is connected to worship all of the time. We are created to worship, yet if God does not rescue us and redeem us from self-orientation called the bondage of sin, then we will worship the creation rather than the Creator. God made us to worship. But there's another point. Look at this verse again. You shall have as our, our bent, our orientation to worship. You shall have no other gods means God made us to worship only Him. So listen, take what I've said, that we're going to worship everybody, whether they're Christian or not, worships, and not just part-time, they worship all the time. Their soul is always seeking refuge in something. They're always orienting themselves around something. All of us worship all of the time, whether it's the Creator or the creation. But God made us to worship only Him. Now you know Israel struggled through several stages in their belief about God. Sometimes this escapes us. When they were in Egypt, they were a they were in a nation that's called polytheistic. Polywogs and upon many of them. Poly means many gods. Egypt was a polytheistic nation. It was the greatest nation on earth. They proudly served the pantheon of gods and goddesses. They had gods of fields, gods of rivers, light and darkness, sun and storm. They swore allegiance to the gods of love and war. They bowed down to worship images in both beasts and in human form. This is Egypt. But let me take you behind the scenes just a little bit in Egypt, alright? Except for two strips of land along the Nile, Egypt was a desert region. And the Egyptians believed that no god ever resided in the desert. The only thing you find in the desert are dangerous, ungodded snakes. And by having Aaron's rod swallow up the rods of the Egyptian magicians, here's what God's doing. He's showing that He has power where Egypt's gods do not in the desert over the snakes. The farming community depended on the Niles overflooding to turn their dry land into usable agricultural land. And they had a god that was credited for overflooding. The god's name was Hopi. And when God turned the Nile River into blood, here's what He was doing. He was demonstrating that He was the one who had power over this false god as well as the River Nile. Each year, Egypt experienced a frog season when all along the Nile, people were forced night after night to listen to the cacophony of croaking frogs. And the god in charge of regulating this annual affliction was a goddess. Her name was Hecht. She was a female deity who protected, of all things, the crocodiles in the Nile River, the natural-born enemies of the frogs. So the goddess Hecht increased the crocodiles who took care of the frogs. And when God sent the plague of frogs, it was clear that things had gotten out of hand for Hecht. You see, Egypt had various local deities who looked over their livestock, yet God sent a plague on their domesticated animals. And the plague of darkness demonstrated God's power 
over Amun-Ra, the sun god, who was thought by the Egyptians to be the source of all life. And so when the sun was eclipsed, it meant that Amun-Ra was eclipsed by the power of God. Friends, every one of the ten plagues that God sent to Egypt to bring His people out were attacking, was attacking their gods. They were a polytheistic nation. And God was proving He is the supreme God and the only God. But Israel came out of that and they moved into a second stage. If you want to know the technical term for it, which I think you could forget immediately after you hear it, but just understand what it means. It's henotheism. Here's what it means. It's the belief in many gods, but taking one of them as the supreme God. So listen, here's what it is. There's a lot of gods that you could choose from, but our nation is going to choose this God because he or she is supreme. That's henotheism. And we see that in a message that Israel sent to the Amorites. And here's what they said. Will you not possess what Kamash your God gives you to possess? And all that the Lord our God has dispossessed before us, we will possess. In other words, Israel's saying, because they're henotheistic at this point, you have your God, and we've got our God, and our God is more powerful than your God. That's not yet where God wants them. They're coming out of polytheism. They've moved into this other belief, but they're moving to a third position. But look at what the danger was when you believe there are many viable gods. Look at what Solomon did. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you For surely they will turn your heart after their gods. That's the danger that Israel was in. But there's a third stage called monotheism. Mono is one. Theism is belief in God. Monotheistic, I believe in one God for all the earth. Not just one supreme God over lower pantheons of gods. One God for all the earth. That's monotheism. By the way, God has always been a monotheist. He tells His people in our command, you shall have no other gods before Me. So would Israel, seeing what had happened in Egypt, now get this, would they, seeing what happened in Egypt as God demolished all their gods, would they exclusively worship God? Now friends, listen. Just gave you a quick historical snapshot, but now it's time to focus back in. Let me ask you this question. Would we today, church, who've been rescued out of bondage to sin and taken out of the world and put into a spiritual kingdom, the kingdom of God, would we exclusively worship God and no other? The better question is, do we? You know, one learns a lot when they're in captivity. Look what happened to the Israelites even later in Ezekiel. And I said to them, cast away the detestable things your eyes feast on, every one of you, and do not defile yourselves with what? They're still idols of Egypt. They're still plagued with those old idols. I am the Lord your God, but they rebelled against Me and were not willing to listen to Me. None of them cast away the detestable things their eyes feasted on, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. Idolatry is so entrenched in us 
that even when we've been brought out of slavery to sin, we will battle it, and we will battle it, and we will battle it, and this command is to help us have victory in the fight. And even though freed from Egypt, Israel still was bound by the shackles of idolatry, and they would repeatedly turn away from God to other gods, which is amazing, because God in His own Word said this, there is no other God beside Me a righteous God and a Savior. There is none beside me. And Paul echoes this in 1 Corinthians. An idol has no real existence. There is no God but one. So listen, here's my question. If there really isn't a possibility of another God, then why this first commandment? Doesn't it seem like a little bit of a waste of ammunition on God's part? Come on, how do you say there's no have no other gods before me when there are no other gods? We get a clue into this as Paul goes on in chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians because he says, for although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth. You know what so-called gods are? Now listen, if you haven't heard a thing I've said and haven't held on to anything yet, here's where you want to start cluing in. You ready? This is important. So-called gods are created by us out of the stuff of creation. In fact, John Calvin once wrote that our hearts are idle factories and it forces us to ask ourselves the question, and here's the question, here's what we're going to be asking, has something or someone besides Jesus Christ received our heart's trust, preoccupation, loyalty, service, fear, worship, and delight? How do you know if something or somebody has not taken the place of God in our lives. Let me offer you two tests that we could take even this morning. The first one is the love test. Who do you love more than anyone? Better yet, do you love God really more than anything or anyone? Now friends, listen. Here's what's not helpful when we examine ourselves. It's really not helpful what I heard last night after the message. When I had several people come up to me and say, you know what, we all worship idols. It's utterly unhelpful. Because God's not really this morning telling you and telling me, hey, you're an idol worshiper. He's telling us exactly what it is that we're worshiping in place of Him. So my hope this morning is that God is putting in your mind, this is my idol, this is my so-called God, this is what I'm orienting my life around, and it's robbing me of my allegiance and my loyalty and my love and my worship of God. And He doesn't like this. So we take the love test and we ask, who do we love, what do we love, what do we desire? Here's what Origen, the third century church father, said. What each one honors above all else, what before all things he admires and loves, this for him is God. When your mind roams, where does it go? You find it almost obsessively fixated on a person or a thing. How do you spend your money? What's your calendar look like? Where is God in the calendar? Where is God in your financial portfolio? 
What do you get excited about? You see, a false god can be any good thing. You heard that, right? Any good thing that we focus on to the exclusion of God. Ministry. Sport. Recreation, a hobby, personal health or fitness. See, we're free to enjoy good things in life, but never to replace God with them. What do you love more than anything? Can I ask that a little bit differently and get you to really pin this in your mind and hold yourself to the wall of examination? Do you love God more than anything? Do you really? What is that? (laughs) That would be good. There's another test. The other one is the truth, or the trust test, rather. Friends, where do you turn in times of trouble? When your life is falling apart, where do you go? Martin Luther wrote, whatever your heart clings to and relies upon, that is properly your God. You know what many people do? They, tr- they run to and trust in their addictions. Loneliness and discouragement moves them to drugs. It moves them to alcohol. It can move you to sex. It can move you to shopping. You ever had money left over? And we call it burning a hole in your pocket, but really it's gnawing away. I just want to spend money on something, and I can't even think of what I want to spend money on, but I just have the, the urge to spend money. That's worship. Some trust in their jobs, some in their insurance policies, their bank accounts, their pension plans for security. Listen, if you've got twenty dollars or $30,000 in your account, you feel pretty at peace with the world, right? You can handle anything that happens. What if you're down to two hundred? dollars You still have the same peace. You still have the same sense of security. Yeah, you've got the same God as you had when you had 200000 that you've got when you're down to $10 because the hard times have hit. You know what? When I was in college, every single semester you had to prove how you're going to pay for classes before you began. And except for my first year that my parents paid, I was on my own for the rest of the time. And I never, ever knew when I was going through registration, how am I going to pay for these classes? In every single semester... God provided to the extent that I came out of college with $4,400 of debt rather than the thousands and thousands that I could have. But Pastor Tim, that was 20 years ago. College has exponentially increased. God's the same God. Who do you trust? Some things that are... Some people trust families. They trust social positions, science, or the doctor. You know, every time I go to a person that's getting surgery, here's how I pray every single time. I pray for the nurses. I pray that they slept well that night. I pray that they have good relationships with their, their husbands or their wives if they're a male nurse. I pray that their families are doing well so that they can focus everything on this person that I love and that I'm praying for. I pray for the doctor that they would have would be a doctor that's at peace in his life or her life and that they can operate knowing that beyond them is the one who holds their hand. But above all of the praying that I do, 
for the nurses and the anesthesiologists and the doctors and all the financial platoon of people that come to you when you're in a hospital, I always, always get to the ultimate person we're praying for. God, you're the great physician. And where medicine fails, you endure. And when doctors run out of ideas, you're not even at the beginning. You are trustworthy and you are faithful. Years ago, we had a family that used to be in our church and she had a sister that she loved so dear to her who got cancer. She prayed and she prayed and she fasted and she asked God to save her sister, to heal her sister and she had other people praying for her as well and her sister died and a revolution occurred in her heart that changed the complexion of her family since. She immediately had her husband strip all the wiring out of the house that he could do while still maintaining electrical current. Got rid of the microwave. Stripped all the food out of the cupboards and the fridge and only put health food in there. Completely threw her family into chaos. And as we worked through what was going on, eventually she began to see that something happened in her life. That death of her sister created a fork that said, God, I can't trust you. And I've got four children that I've got to protect from you. So I'm going to protect them. She bowed down at the altar of health. She bowed down at the altar of control. But behind the altar was her own fears, her own self whom she was worshiping. Her children were in the altar. She was serving them for her own peace safety, and security. That's worship. Who do you trust? Who do you really turn to when things get tough? Job said it this way. He said, if I have made gold my trust or called fine gold my confidence, I would have been false to God above. Our God, friends, is a jealous God, and this is exactly what the first commandment stresses. God made us to worship. God made us to worship Him. But the third point is this. God made us to worship Him with all our hearts. Now the Eastern Taradas people who lived in the, or live in the high mountains in the interior valley of the central Indonesia islands, they numbered about 100,000 people in 1961. And I read a really interesting report from the tribal chieftain who was interviewed and he commented on the Ten Commandments. You see, missionaries went to Indonesia and talked to these tribal people and they saw the Ten Commandments and they understood them at least to some degree and then he commented on them. And I want to read to you what the tribal chieftain said about the Ten Commandments. You ready? I would rather have the, listen, 7,777 commandments and prohibitions of the Torah Adat, which was their native law. I would rather have all of them than the Ten Commandments. Why? Now listen, this is the point. Because, he says, the Ten Commandments demand my whole heart, whereas our 7,777 ancestral commands and prohibitions leave a lot of room for freedom. You understand that about the moral law? It is all or nothing. 
And we're taught from little children to share. We discipline our children when they don't. Yet some things, friends, you know it, some things are just not meant to be shared. You don't, you don't share confidential information. You don't share test answers that you are doing on your test. And you don't share the exclusive love between a, a husband and a wife. So it's not surprising to learn that there's times when God refuses to share. He will not share His glory with any other so-called God, so He commands His people, you shall have no other gods before Me. Now when you read that, here's the confusion, right? Okay, God, are you saying that it's okay to have other gods, but we've got to have you as the priority? You don't mind so much that we've got all these idols in our lives as long as we worship you more than them? Is that what you're saying before Me? Can I correct the Hebrew language? And not correct the Hebrew. Can I correct the transliteration of the Hebrew language? Here's what it's really saying. Before me really is translated literally before my face. Put differently, God is saying, don't let me see even a hint of idolatry in you. Because he's ever examining us. We live Coram Deo before the face of Deo God. He's always watching. He's jealously looking at our hearts. He's seeing if any part of our hearts, even the little corner at the very darkest bottom, is turned away from him after an idol. And since God is present everywhere at once, friends, here's the utter naked reality that when we worship a so-called God or an idol, it's like standing right in the face of God and spitting. That's what he says. See, he wants every part of our hearts in full obedience which comes from whole hearts of worship. Now listen, let me ask you a question. Let's just invite participation in your own hearts. You ready? Don't react yet. You have an idol in your life? You have a so-called God that your heart runs after? And did you years ago have a so-called God and an idol in your life and you think in years from now you're going to as well? We are at a cliff that goes like this. I can't get them out on my own. This is the purpose, this is the grace of the moral law. We can't stop worshiping idols. We need help. And there is one who has come to redeem us and to rescue us and to empower us. His name is Jesus. And he freed us not to live to ourselves. We're a freed people, not a free people. He freed us and empowered us to live for him and his glory. So we learn to ask God for help. Look at what David says. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Uphold me with a willing spirit. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God. You will not despise. Here's David's audacious boldness that we need to learn. Search me, O God, and know my heart. See if there be any grievous way in me. You can't get more grievous than worshiping another God. 
God is never okay with having a part of our lives. We can never say to God, hey, I'm a lot better than I was 10 years ago. God, I hope you're happy with it. He's not happy with it. He's moving us towards 100% allegiance, total commitment, God above all others. That's why John, 1 John 5.21 warns the church, warns us, keep yourselves from idols and Solomon perfectly expresses, friends, what's going to happen in us if we do not heed the first commandment. Here's his own testimony. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Now look at what happened. So I hated life. Friends, I'm telling you, The majority of depression that I see is coming from roots of idols in our lives. We will always hate life when we run after so-called gods because they will suck us dry and leave us barren. The Ten Commandments is God's claim on us for exclusive total worship and service and it begins with our, our obedient response to the God who brought us out of the Egypt of our sin, that bondage to sin that all of us were caught up in, that God who paid the price, the purchase price for us through His Son's sacrifice on the cross. So friends, take the love test. Take the trust test. Who do you love more than any other? Who do you turn to when life starts to fall apart? Ask God to show you any idols in your heart and ask people who love you to tell you if they see any. And let's do this. And this is how I'm closing. Don't close your minds. Here's what Joshua tells us. Listen, Joshua is about to die. Friends, when somebody's about to die and they tell you their last words, please, you pay attention. It's the very essential excellence of everything they want to express to you and the very few moments left remaining to them. And here's what Joshua says to the people of God. Put away your gods. And serve the Lord. Choose this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I'm going to ask you to do such a bold thing this morning. Listen, I don't want you to respond to this if you know, yeah, you've got idols somewhere in your life. Don't do that. That's utterly unhelpful. God's not even wanting you to know, hey, I'm an idolater. He wants to show you your gods. He wants to show you your idols. He wants to show us where our allegiance to Him is lacking and where we are spitting and insulting His face so that we can choose this day whom we will serve and put away our gods. So if you have heard God speak, and by the way, there are symptoms of that. Is your heart getting a little squirrely within you? You're starting to argue, you're starting to rationalize, defend, get uncomfortable. That's the blood of your soul pumping. God's been speaking to you about specific things in your life that are competing with your allegiance for Him and your love for Him. Can I invite you to stand? I'm going to pray for you. And I know this is hard. 
but I'm going to ask you to be obedient. Would you stand before the congregation right now? All those familiar things I've done them. I don't need to stand. I don't need to show everybody. I know it's just between me and God and I'm doing business right now. You know what? There's something about the Bible's command to stand and be reckoned with. If you need to stand, I'm going to invite you to stand. And then I'm going to ask you to do one other thing. Listen, we're a community. We've got to start living a little more transparent, appropriately so. We can't be this privatized little flock of people. We've got to see people are struggling, and you begin to pray. So look around and see all the people standing. Everybody, look around. Let me invite you to do that. So you can pray for them and encourage one another. And be a part of one another's walk. We can't put away God's on our own. We need help. Amen? Let me pray for you. Lord, thank you for my friends that are standing. And, and Lord, for those who are sitting still, I trust, Father, that they are walking closely with you and you have identified for them the idols and the so-called gods in their lives. And you have helped them put them away and chosen to serve you today. But Lord, for those who are standing Lord, I pray for grace. Grace that moves us out of bondage and empowers us to live in the freedom that You have come to give, God. Freedom to serve You exclusively. Lord, I pray that if there's any part of an idol, any even shred of evidence of a so-called God in our lives that You have made us aware of, Father, right now in this moment, Help us to choose to put them away and serve you as our family should. Lord, I pray for strength. Let no one leave here today carrying the idols under their saddlebags as they did in Israel. Throw them in the valley of Hinnom and burn them. God, I pray that we would put them away and walk in freedom and serve you above all others, loving you and worshiping you. Love you, Father. We thank You for the strength from the Spirit of God. We thank You for the sacrifice of the Son of God that makes all this possible. And in Jesus' name, Amen.